Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, well, good morning. You guys doing all right? So I, uh, yesterday... I usually study, if I'm speaking on the weekends, I, I study on Saturday, but yesterday I decided I was going to spend a little time in the garage, one of my, my, uh, one of my favorite places to, to go and mess around and build stuff. And so I was out there and I usually put my headphones in and, you know, I kind of either I'm listening to, you know, a book or something, just trying to get prep for the weekend. And, and I overheard a conversation and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. It was two women and they were talking. And so I take out one of my headphones and I realize that at the end of my driveway behind the neighbor's bushes, there's two uh, older women and they're talking. And I'm thinking, well, they're kind of on my property, so I could listen in. You know, that seems fair to me. And so I take out the other headphone and I'm listening and I'm catching some of the things that they're saying and they're talking about God and they're talking about Jesus. And I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. And so... Uh, eventually, they end their conversation, they begin to walk by my driveway, and I realize who they are. They're Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I make myself uncomfortably available for them, where I like, I take out my head, and I stand there, and I'm like, uh-huh, yes, yes. And so they, they're walking by, and they look at me, and um, I, I thought they were going to just keep walking. I thought, no way. I'm right here. I am making eye contact. Am I on a list? Like, what is the deal? Are you guys avoiding me? And she, she makes this comment. She says, do you want to find peace? And I say, I would love to. She said, okay, well, let me come and talk to you about some Bible verses. And I said, okay, let's talk about it. And so we're talking for a little bit. And she's reading some Bible verses. And I say, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I've actually interacted with some people from your church before, Jehovah's Witnesses, about five years ago. And I had a lot of questions for them. And they wrote down my questions. And then they said they were going to come back. And it's been five years. Are you, are you the people who are here to answer my questions? And they said, well, you know, um, we'll give it our best shot. Let's see what your questions are. And so we had about an hour-long conversation, and we kind of narrowed in on a really important understanding of who Jesus is and if he's God or not. And, and so we talked about that for a long time, and they wrote down questions that I had and some of the, you know, objections and the theological discussions, and said they're going to come back this week, which in another five years, maybe I'll see them, but... I don't tell you this um, to make fun of them. I actually respect them. I think they're completely wrong about a lot of things. But I respect that they would, they would come on a Saturday morning when it's hot and knock on people's doors that they don't know. And oftentimes the people who don't want to talk to them all because they want to share their faith. And I thought, you know, there's something about that. These people live differently than the rest of us. Even in those of us who are Christians, they're more serious about their faith than, than we are. And that's what this whole series is about. It's about looking at different ways in different arenas of our life that we can live differently as we follow Jesus. So that we don't just blend in with everybody around us, but when people look at us, they go, these people, they live differently and they have better outcomes in their life than, than we do. And so we've been looking at different ways that we can do that. And today, I kind of want to summarize the whole series of where we've come and then maybe add an extra layer of how we can live differently. And I want to do it by looking at the story of Jacob. If you're not a Bible person, you don't know anything about the Bible, 
There's the Old Testament, which is the beginning, and at the, the first book is Genesis, and maybe you already knew that. And in Genesis, you get all kinds of stories about creation and who we are and what went wrong and things, and that's where you're going to find the story of Jacob. And if you open your Bible and you're not a Bible person, you start reading through stories like this, you might be tempted to think, well, it's really just a bunch of stories about how I'm supposed to live. Examples of people who are moral or spiritual, you will quickly realize that it is mostly a, a story of how people are not supposed to live. Like it's just a bunch of screwed up people and how God uses them. And that's very true of Jacob, is he is a disaster. And you're going to find out he makes a lot of bad decisions along the way. So Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, and he is a twin. So there's Jacob, and then there's the, his brother Esau, and um, they're very different from one another. I kind of, what came to my mind, and maybe this is an old reference, you won't remember it, but there was a movie in the late 80s called Twins, and it was Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. And it was like Arnold got like everything, you know, he got all the genetic, and then there was Danny. I make fun of my brother-in-law all the time, who's also the head of the youth department, because he's a twin. And I always go, dude, you're the Danny DeVito. You know that, right? Like you're, you got all the leftovers. And he thinks that's not that funny, but I think it is. Um, that's kind of what's happening with Esau and Jacob, is Esau is the firstborn, and he is the one that is the man's man. He's an outdoorsman. He's a skilled hunter. <clears throat> and because of that, he is his father's favorite. His father's name is Isaac. And then you have Jacob, and he is pretty much the polar opposite of Esau. He likes to stay at home in, indoors. He's his mother's favorite, and he is the secondborn. And already, just by understanding his background, we already can guess some things which are true about Jacob is that because he's the second born, he, he, because he's the, the, the weaker of the two, he's um, kind of ignored by his father. He has this deep and emptiness. He has really some father wounds, some deep father wounds. And I think we're beginning to understand as a culture what this does to people. And there is a whole sermon and a series in this, but about what it means to either not have a relationship with your father or have a poor one and how that affects you in the long run emotionally and relationally, and I think we're starting to understand that a little bit more when we're willing to acknowledge it as a culture. Um, one of the first things I do if I ever counsel people and we're sitting down, maybe it's premarital counseling or they're just going through a tough time, one of the first questions I ask them is, tell me about your relationship with your father. Because I just know that that's, that's going to affect a lot, about, a lot of your relational and emotional health. It's just true. And it's not only just true of those areas, but it's also true spiritually. There was a book written by an NYU professor, a psychologist, uh, Paul Vitz, and he was a lifelong atheist and eventually became a Christian. And because he's a psychologist, he wanted to know what was happening in the psychology of atheism and theism. And so he took the most famous atheists and Christians from the previous century, and he began to study their lives. And here's what his conclusion was. His conclusion is that all the atheists either had no relationship or a poor relationship with their fathers, and all the theists had a strong relationship with their fathers. J.P. Moreland, one of the speakers that we have here, incredible philosopher, he was debating an atheist in front of a large crowd. And one of the first things that he says is, if you are here today and you're an atheist, I will bet you a steak dinner you have daddy issues. Which I thought, way to warm up the crowd, man. Like, ready to really win them on your side just to ease into it like that. But we see this, <clears throat> we see this in Jacob. <clears throat> is He has some, some deep wounds, and it goes back to his relationship with his father. And we're going to see how he chooses to try to fill those, how to try to heal those wounds. And it's primarily through the things we've been talking about the last few weeks, money, sex, and power. So let's jump in. 
Genesis 25, verse 29 says this. Uh, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, because that's what he does, he likes to cook with his mom, Esau came in from the open country and he's famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Okay, so we get this picture here. He comes in and he's like, he's supposed to be big, tough, but he comes and he goes, I'm just so hungry. I just get emotional when I'm hungry. I'm dying up here. And Jacob goes, oh, well, I can fix that for you. All you have to do is give me everything. If you're not familiar, the birthright, what that means is you get as the firstborn, you get double the inheritance, so twice the amount of money. You get to now be the head of the family and all of the people who work for the family. So you have power. And then you also have this this kind of mystical thing where you in the future are going to be blessed by God. And so he says, if you want me to share some of my food, you're going to have to give me all of those blessings. He continues on. 32. Look, I'm about to die. That is so dramatic, right? (laughs) I'm, I'm dying. Esau said, what good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So he agrees. I'll give you my birthright um, for this immediate gratification. And you might be tempted to think that is the worst deal in human history. You're going to, for a, a cup of soup, give your entire future away. Who would be silly enough to do something where they're willing to sacrifice their future for temporary satisfaction for an immediate need or appetite? We would, most of us. Yeah, we do that all the time. Because this is what we do. Many of us, and we've seen it, maybe, maybe it's too close to home. Let's look at maybe some of the political leaders that we have or the business leaders. How many of them, pastors, how many of them have destroyed their lives just to fulfill an immediate appetite? They give up everything, their family, their ministries, um, their future health, just so they can gratify this immediate need. And it may be true of you as well. The doctor says you got to change your lifestyle. It's going to take away years of your life. Or your wife has told you you've got to stop working so much. We're, we're struggling relationally. Or the thing that you're looking at, it's killing your intimacy. And yet, we're willing to do it to satisfy this immediate. So one of the learnings that we have just right off the top is, is our ability to control our appetites will determine our future. All of us have appetites, all different types. What's going to determine our future is how we deal with those appetites. My dad asked me a couple times a year, he'll sit me down and he'll go, Cody, I want you to list all the things that could derail your life or the ministry here. It's a very fun conversation. So we start going through, and you know what? Almost all of the things that could really mess up my life are, there's temporary appetites that I have. These things in which, in the moment, I'd like to feel some sort of satisfaction. And so it really determines what your future is going to look like. And Esau, he couldn't control his appetites, and so it's going to cost him almost everything. So in order for this agreement to be binding... Isaac, their father, is going to have to agree to it as well. And so when it becomes clear that Isaac is ending the, near of, uh, the end of his life, he calls his firstborn, Esau, and he says, look, I'm going to die soon, and so it's going to be time for me to pass this all on to you. 
I want you to go hunt, bring some game, cook it, and then we're going to have a ceremony. We'll sit down and I'm going to give you everything that I've promised. Well, Rebecca overhears this, who is their mother. And because Jacob is her favorite son, not Esau, she comes up with a plan. Jacob, while your, son, while, your, while your brother is out, what I want you to do is I want you to prepare a meal. Then we're going to go in before Esau and we're going to trick your father into believing you're him. At this time, he's really old and he's blind. And so he doesn't really know what's going on. And so if we dress up as your brother, then we can trick him into giving you the blessing instead of him. Here's what it says. Jacob said to his father, as he enters in, <clears throat> I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And so he goes in and he pretends like he is someone else. This is a great picture of how often um, we try to get what we want in life. Is we pretend like we're somebody else. We've almost perfected this, I think, as a society. Have you ever been on a first date before? Whoever you're on that date with is not who you'll have a second and third date with. They are pretending to be something totally different. If you're an employer or an employee and you've been at a job interview, the person you're interviewing, that's a different person. Everybody's awesome. Or you're making a sales pitch or we have, we have honed in on the ability to create an image of ourselves that we project out in the world to almost perfection. I mean, go on social media. This is, I'm not going to say that. Okay, I'll say it about myself. I look so much better on social media than I do in real life. My wife has perfected the filter. I'm tanner. I'm slimmer. I'm easier to get along with. I mean, everything is better online. And this is what we do with our entire lives. As we craft this image where we have a car that we drive and we have certain clothes that we wear and we have a certain personality that we present to people And it's not a reflection of who we really are. It's really just a way to get what we want. Could be attention. It could be influence. Could just be making other people envious of us. But very rarely do we we truly expose who we are to other people. And it's in part because we're insecure. Go back to that whole father wound thing is, guess what? Even if you've had a great father in your life, you still have deep insecurities. And it stems from not your family of origins, but the humanity's origins. That we lost our heavenly father. And so all of us have these deep insecurities that we're not enough. And that people who got to know us, they wouldn't like us. So Isaac knows something's off. um, But he gives his blessing anyway. And you might think, well, just take it back then. Because Esau's going to find out. And he does. And he's going to be angry. And he is. Why don't you just take it back? It's kind of like signing the will. Like it's been signed. It's over. No take backs. And so Esau finds out what happens. And he's angry. And he says, I am going to kill my brother. And so, of course, he flees. He goes to a, a neighboring land where his uncle Laban lives, and he begins working for him. About a month goes by, him working for his uncle, and they have a discussion. It says, says to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages to be. So you're hanging out here, you've been around for a month, clearly you want to stay for a little bit. What do I need to pay you? And he kind of gives a weird answer at first. He says, Uh, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, now, this is weird. Leah had weak eyes. That is a weird thing. Yeah, my kids are great. The middle one's got weak eyes, though. And we're going to quickly realize he's not talking here about having bad eyesight. We see it when they describe Rachel. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Oh, I get it. 
It's not that it was hard for Leah to see. It's hard for her to be seen because she's ugly. U G L Y, you ain't got no alibi, you ugly. You remember that? That was written about Leah. Sorry, that was rude. Um, and we'll, we're not going to pick on her. In fact, it'll turn out better for her in the end. But, but that's what it's talking about. It's saying that, that she's ugly. And so verse 18. But Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years, which is four times what would be expected, in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Realize what's happening is Jacob has this deep emptiness, this wound within his heart, and he is looking for something to fulfill him. And he's already tried money and power, and it hasn't worked out well. And so what's he going to try now? Sex and love. And it's not just that he's attracted to her. It's that he has put all of his hope that she is going to finally be the thing that he's been looking for. And so he's very clearly over his head. That he is blinded by his own love and lust because he has put his entire weight of his being on this relationship. But what he doesn't know is he made a mistake. He doesn't understand that his uncle Laban and him are a lot alike. But Laban is older and he's better at this. He's a better con artist and he's a better liar than Jacob is. And, and Jacob is about to, uh, he's about to be conned. And so Laban uses this as an opportunity. He sees how desperate Jacob is for Rachel. And so here's what he does. He says, well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. So stay here with me. So come work for me. And, and yeah, you're right. It would be better if she's with you. Now, what do you think Jacob heard in this moment? He heard the same thing my kids hear when I say, maybe, let's talk about it later, which is, yes, that's always a yes. And so he hears, okay, she's going to be mine. But Laban is kind of a lawyer. He's like, you better read the fine print here, because I didn't say yes. What I said was, it is better if I gave her to you than a stranger. (laughs) That doesn't mean I'm giving her to you. And yet he's blinded to it. He doesn't see it. And so, verse 20, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days. Oh, he's so in love. Only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, now this is, this is pretty bold right here. Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. This is what this would look like. When Amy and I were dating, I went and sat with her father to have coffee, to get his approval for me to ask her to marry me. And if during that conversation I said to Jim, and by the way, Jim is about 6'4", 225. Uh, at the time, I was much skinnier. Uh, and I said to him, I love your daughter, and I cannot wait to have sex with her. <laughs> That's what he's doing right here. How do you think that conversation would, would go over? Probably not well. And yet, that's what's happening. And so, verse 22, Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter, wait a minute, Leah, I thought, okay, and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. Okay, so he's pulling the switcheroo here. Is during the ceremony... They're wearing a veil. And so he probably doesn't recognize that it's not the daughter that he thought he was marrying. And their ceremony goes on for many days and there's lots of alcohol. And so he probably had his beer goggles on. And, 
And then, at the end of all of it, she's brought to his tent, no electricity, can't see anything, and so, you know, he assumes it's Rachel. But he wakes up in the morning, and here's what he sees. When morning came, there was Leah. Just imagine, he wakes up, he rolls over to see his new bride, and he goes, we guys, what is we guys doing here? Everybody has experienced a version of this. Now, hopefully not this, (laughs) but a version of this, where you think you're about to experience the ultimate, the thing that you've worked your life towards, the thing that's going to finally fulfill you and satisfy you, and you experience, and it's just not what you thought it was going to be. I mean, sure, it was great, and it's awesome, and you're glad, but do you feel completely satisfied? No. No. You realize that you still, you're still not there. You still feel empty. And so, of course, Jacob goes to Laban and he says, what is this that you have done to me? Which, by the way, Leah's got to be watching this going, seriously? This is, okay. Uh, I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now, listen to his response. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Now, this is a lame excuse, but do you think maybe something clicked in his mind at this time when he heard, you know, it's not our custom for the younger to get before the older? Oh, that's a little too close to home. So he finishes with this. He says, uh, finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. I would imagine, and this is just me guessing a little bit, that Jacob didn't put up a fight because he could have. He could have been like, you know what? what, I've been here seven years. Now you're going to want another. I'm going to be here for 14 years and you deceived me. How dare you? And put up a big fight and argue with him. But he doesn't. Why? Here's my guess. is because Jacob realized that Laban did exactly what he did to his own father. In the dark, I pretended to be someone else. And when they called out for somebody else's name, I'm the one who responded. And so what I did to someone else has just been done to me. I really got what I deserved. Maybe he's having a little bit of self-awareness. Self-awareness is one of those things that it's really valuable, but it's very difficult to be able to see, especially flaws in ourselves. It's almost impossible at times to be able to see these things because we're blinded to the truth about us. But one of the ways that I think we're able to see truths about us that we don't want to see is by who we hang out with. People that we are, that we avoid or that we're, we gravitate towards, they reveal things, not just about who they are, but about who we are. I remember years ago, I had somebody in my life who They had the ability to get under my skin like nobody else. They would just make me so frustrated on a regular basis. And one day, somebody said to me, Cody, you know, you two are a lot alike. Which I thought was rude at first. I'm like, yeah, they suck. And so what are you saying? I suck? Okay, maybe. No, no, but the reason why that you get so irritated by them is because they're really who you are going to be in 20 years. You're just seeing yourself and all the worst parts of yourself. 
And when I realized that what they were saying was true and that I was going to become just like them if I continued on, something in my mind changed that I will never become that. I am determined not to be that kind of person. And maybe you've experienced this. Is maybe in your family there's somebody or at work and you see this and you go, man, if I'm not careful, I'm going to be like them. Sometimes I think God might put people in our lives to show us, here's what your future is going to look like unless you turn things around. And I think that might be what's happening to Jacob. Is he sees Laban and he goes, oh, that's me. That's going to be me in 20 years. And so Jacob ends up marrying both sisters, serves for 14 years. And I know that it's going to be a big shocker, but his marriage is not going well. Didn't start off very well, and it's still not going very well. He loves Rachel, but he's still not very interested in Leah. And so in verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. See, remember, think about Leah during this whole thing. Yeah, Jacob got tricked, but he probably deserved it. But what did Leah do to deserve all this? Nothing. She, she's kind of the, the person that's getting thrown under the bus for nothing that she's done. And there's this little phrase right here that as she's going through it, there's this phrase that the Lord saw that sometimes I just think that would be enough. Like in the moments in which I don't understand what's happening in my life and I'm confused and I'm angry and maybe I'm bitter, if I just knew this, like if I was just sure of this, that the Lord sees me, I might be able to just, I might be able to get through anything. Because if the Lord sees me, it means that he's there, that he's aware, and that he has a plan. And so if I could just be confident knowing that he's in control, I would probably be able to walk through this season if I, if I could just know this. And this story is a reminder that the Lord sees. He saw her and he sees you. And not only does he see you, but he's going to do something about it. It may not be in your timing and what you think needs done, but he's going to do something. And so he does something for Leah. He says, I see you, and then I'm going to bless you if you'll be faithful. And that's what God does, is he blesses her. He blesses her with children, an incredible gift. First, she has three boys, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. But after each time she has a child, she keeps coming back to this desire that she has. Verse 34, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Maybe finally he'll see me. Maybe finally he'll love me. We can actually be in a real marriage, in a relationship. I can feel valued and loved because I've given him these incredible gifts of three children. And yet each time he's uninterested. He still loves Rachel. He's still not really interested in Leah. What Leah is doing is the same thing that Jacob has done. Is Jacob had this deep emptiness within him. And so he tried to fulfill it with sex and money and power. And each time it just left him feeling more and more empty and destroying people in the process. But this one hits a little closer to home for some of us. Because she turns around and she goes, well, now I have this deep emptiness. I have this woundedness. And so what she's going to do is she's going to try to fulfill it with a family. If I just could be a good wife, if I can just be a good mother, then I will finally be okay. And she tries, and it still doesn't work. She's still empty. So the big picture of this story can be summarized like this. We believe we're going to bed with Rachel, but we wake up next to Leah. That's what this whole thing is about. And it's not about Leah. We're not going to pick on her. We'll get back to her in a moment. But this is life. It happened to Leah, 
And also, Leah did it. If she thought there was going to be something in this world that was finally going to satisfy her, you pick what you think it is. Sex, money, power, family, whatever. She thinks that this is finally going to be the thing that heals my heart and satisfies me. And then when she realizes it, it doesn't do it. Even if, even if Leah had the relationship with Jacob that Rachel does, she still wouldn't be fulfilled. And I know this because we'll find out later in the story, if you continue to read on, that Rachel isn't satisfied either. And she's the one that's in love, or at least loved. See, the story of the scripture is people over and over and over again trying to find something that fulfills them anywhere besides God, and they're always disappointed. That there is only one place in this life, or only one thing in this world, that's going to finally be able to meet those desires. It's going to be God himself. Now, if we've been around, um, been around church for a little while, you've heard this message before. I've taught variations of it. Pastors have been teaching it for thousands of years is that the only thing that's going to eventually satisfy you, that's going to bring worth and value and purpose into your life is going to be God. That's the big picture. Here's the problem. And if, by the way, if you're not a church person and you're like, this is all new to me, I, I, I want you to wrestle with this. Is this actually true? Is it actually true that I am searching for this, this thing? And you may not even be able to fully identify what this is, but you know that there's something that you're looking for and it can only be found in God. Is that true? But for the rest of us who go, yeah, I believe that's true. Why do we live like it's not? Like we do. We get up every single day and we live as if there's something out there that's going to finally fulfill us. It's why we go to work every day and we put all our hopes and dreams in that. It's why we put this weight on our, our spouses and on our kids and why we fill our schedules. It's, if you look underneath the surface, it motivates us. And we may say intellectually, I know that there's nothing out there that will bring that satisfaction. But yet we live as if it's still out there. We just haven't found it yet. Eventually, Leah starts to get it. Verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now this is different. Because remember, every time she gave birth, she said, finally, my, my husband will love me. He'll pay attention to me. I'll find my value and worth. She says, no, no, forget that. This time I will praise the Lord. I'm tired of trying to impress. I'm tired of trying to get. I know that that's not the answer. Really, I've just got to, I've got to start turning my praise to the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. It's almost symbolic. Like she stopped having kids because she, she no longer tried to impress her husband. She tried to get the love from him. And good, a good marriage is a gift from God for sure. But even the best marriage is not going to get what she's looking for. So she realizes it's not Jacob, not even the kids that's going to satisfy me. It's only going to be through God. What she does is she stops putting all these other things first and she begins to put God first. And when she puts God first in her life, then God turns around and he is able to use her in some pretty crazy way. So go back to that verse really quick because you may have heard this name. This son is named Judah. And if you're a Bible person, you know that Judah is going to become an important person because not only is he going to be one of the 12 tribes of Israel, it's going to be through his family that 1,500 years later, this man named Jesus arrives. And it's not through all the other boys. It's not through the firstborn. It's not through the people who are more powerful. Or, no, no, it's going to be through this boy that eventually the Savior of the world arrives. Through Leah, the one who was unwanted, that Jesus is going to come. See, it's when we begin to put God first that we're able to find the freedom and the healing that we're looking for, and God is able to use us. A.W. Tozer, 
It says, as God is exalted to the right place, which would be the first place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved all at once. Because that's what we were made for. We were made to not pursue our own needs and desires, not to idolize someone or something else, but to put God first. So I think there's three types of people in this world. The first type of person is those who do not seek God at all. Not only are they not interested in putting God first, they're just not interested in God. I'm not saying they're atheists or agnostics, but just they have other needs, they have other desires that they're pursuing in life. Their career, they're pursuing sex, they're pursuing temporary pleasures, and all of them are fleeting at best. But the thing that drives them is this delusion that just over the next mountain, that's where I'm going to find happiness. That's where I'm going to find fulfillment. And they may reach the top of the mountain and it doesn't. And so they, they go for the next mountain. And then they just spend the rest of their lives searching and looking for something, thinking it's right around the corner. Then the next group of people is the people who seek God, but not first. And I think these people are the most miserable people in the world. Because there's a war happening within their heart. Because they know that they cannot find satisfaction in anything in this world. It's only through God. And yet they continue to try to find that satisfaction through other things. And so there's a war within their heart. And then the last is people who seek God first. I've seen in my own life, these are the happiest people in the world. Because whenever they look at a, a situation in their life, or they're trying to figure out what God has for them in an arena, they say, whatever you want, my answer is yes. And they're free. They're free from having to try to find this fulfillment and this satisfaction because they've already found it. They already know where it's going to come from. It's by them simply putting God first. And so in their relationships, they may have times in which they go, man, it would be so much easier if I put me first and I would just ended this relationship because this marriage isn't working and it's just, it's too much. But if I put God first, I'm going to stick it out. Or maybe there's a relationship in which I know it's not God honoring. And so if I want to put me first, I'm staying in it. But if I put God first, I'm going to have to get out. Or maybe it's their sex life. Is they're living with somebody whom they're not married to. And when they put them first, that's all right. But when they put God first, they realize, I, I can't do this anymore. Or maybe it's their money. You know, God can be first when it comes to my afterlife. But for this life, I think it's all mine. And so when he wants to be first and he says, give away 10% and start giving away to needs and opportunities... If it's me first, that's my money. I'm going to do with it what I want. But if it's God first, well, it's his then. Or power. My grandfather set a great example in our family because he set up, uh, he, 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 um, he bypassed a bunch of opportunities to have promotions where he could have continued to work up higher and higher in the company that he was at, but he continued to say no year after year. And the reason was because he would either have to work the weekends or he'd have to move away from his church. And he just said, no, God's first. And so I'm going to have to say no. The one that's probably most difficult for people in my life stage right now is my schedule. Is I'm going to have to say no, not only to things that I want to do, but things that my kids want to do. Because I'm like, sorry, that's on the weekend. And you know where we're at on the weekends. Sorry, that's too many things. And it's going to cause too much anxiety and stress in our world. And, and we want to be this non-anxious presence within our home and within the community. And so that's just going to be too much. We can't do it. Yeah, sorry, we can't spend money on that because guess what? We give so much of it away, we can't afford that anymore. Because if I'm first, I'm going to dictate what my schedule looks like. But if I put God first, well, he gets to choose. And when you put God first, you'll begin to live differently. 
You want to live differently. You want to have different outcomes than the rest of the world and the people around. If you look and you look at the marriages and you look at where culture is heading and you look at, and you go, I don't want to be that, then you need to live differently. And the way that you're going to live differently is through this, is by putting God first in everything that you do. So here's my last question. Very simple question, but hard if you're willing to really ask it. What area of your life do you need to live differently by putting God first? So when I say that, um, for some of you, there's this immediate, I know what it is. Like it's been just there, you know, and it's been bothering you and it's in the background. And when you come to church and you pray and you worship, you just go, okay, it's, I know, I know I need to deal with that. Oh, I know God is just trying to put that in my face because he's going, look, I'm not first in Syria and I need to be. For some of us, maybe, maybe we've been walking this, this faith journey for a while and we go, I think I'm doing this already. Well, it's not like a one-time thing. I mean, it is a one-time thing, but then it's an everyday thing where you get up every day and you go, okay, is God first today? Let me check. Is he first in this? Is he first in this? Is he first in this? Because the, the funny thing happens is every day there is someone or something that is trying to fight for first place in your life. And God oftentimes will not be the one who fights the hardest. He'll allow you to decide. And so every day we have to get up and we have to go, okay, is he first today? Is he first when it comes to my family, when it comes to my finances, when it comes to my career, when it comes to my self-esteem and my identity? Who's first? And so the whole series kind of boils down to, I think, that. Is, am I living differently than the rest of the world because I'm putting God first? Let's pray. Lord, sometimes the blessings that you have given us, all the resources and opportunities, um, they can distract us from what is most important, putting you first. And so, Lord, my prayer is that we would be a community of people who live differently than the world around us, not because we're better people, not because we, but because we put you first. And that people begin to take notice that our lives look differently and that we have different outcomes because of uh, putting you first and that they may, they may be interested in finding more about and ultimately, hopefully, coming to know you and being in a relationship with you simply because we get up every single day and we say, God, you're first. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.